Are you interested in leadership? Welcome to the Menzies Leadership Forum podcast. Tune in for insights and observations about leadership, the challenges and blind spots, attributes and values that you need to lead now and in the future. I'm Liz Gillies, Menzies Foundation CEO and your host today. Let's get started. Today I'm here with world-renowned futurist, Professor Brian David Johnson. Brian is the futurist in residence at Arizona State University's Centre for Science and the Imagination and a professor in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society. Brian works with organisations to develop an actionable 10 to 15 year vision of the future and clarifies the steps we need to take to create the future we want. He speaks and writes extensively, is a regular media correspondent, science fiction writer and filmmaker. In partnership with the Menzies Foundation and University of Melbourne, Brian has been in Australia running a threat casting lab on cyber risk, resilience and the law and recently delivered the 2019 Menzies Oration at the Melbourne School of Law. Brian, welcome. Thank you so much, Liz. Brian, we have about 30 minutes to really explore some of the interesting work that you've been doing um, and also particularly in regard to the work of the Menzies interest in cyber and the law. I'm really looking forward to having a really um, interesting conversation and, you know, encourage you to be as provocative as you can be because um, our audience is really keen to tap into your global insights and knowledge in this space. So it's probably best to start with the obvious. Let's begin at the beginning. Can you tell us what's a futurist? So as a futurist, I work with organizations to look 10 years out into the future. I model both positive and negative futures. And then as an applied futurist, we turn around and look backwards to say, okay, what does that organization need to do five years from now, eight years from now, or even what do they need to start doing on Monday to start moving towards that positive future and moving away from the negative? And so can you perhaps provide a little context about how you're using that approach or the work you're doing as a futurist around the world? So I work with organizations both through my position at Arizona State University and also in my private practice to work with organizations that might need to change themselves. To, they realize that they're on the wrong side of the future. And so they'll bring me in to be able to sit down with them and think about, all right, how do we need to fundamentally change that organization? How do we need to change their human resources? How do we need to change their mergers and acquisitions policy to really kind of dig in? Uh, I also work with companies who are designing products that are 10 years in the future. That was really my job at the Intel Corporation because it took them 10 years to design, develop, and deploy a chip. So it was a vital business importance for them to know today what people would want to do with technology. And that was really my job. As, a, as an engineer, I would say, here's a requirements document or a specification, and we would use that to go about and build that product. Um, and so how did you get involved in this work in the beginning? So tell us a little bit about what led you to what's an incredibly interesting role. So I like to joke with people, I was born to a family of engineers and raised to be a futurist. So both my, my mother and my father were both engineers. My dad was a radar tracking engineer and my mom was an IT specialist back when ladies weren't supposed to be IT specialists. And so I grew up speaking computer. I grew up understanding um, engineering. And um, I actually started taking classes at the local college when I was about 10 years old, sort of understanding computer science. So for me, technology and being able to talk about technology was always natural. I didn't realize until much later in my life that you mean everybody didn't 
start taking Fortran classes when you were 10 years old? And so that was, I, I learned later on that that was, that was not normal. Um, and so as I was coming up though, I had this ability to take interdisciplinary inputs. So everything from economics to social science to history, along with hardware and software and regulation and law and part to put that together to do product design. And that's really what I did in the early nineties is I worked with a set top box manufacturer making set top boxes. These were cable boxes back in the days when you could actually plug in a phone line and have a little back channel on it. So they were interactive television. I did that in the UK and in Scandinavia. And from there, it just blossomed. You're in Australia to work with the Menzies Foundation on providing insight into the future of the law and cyber security and the relationship between those two things. Can you explain a little bit about what the threat casting lab is and what the elements that have been as we move towards getting some insight into what that future threat mitigation strategy might be? So threat casting is a variant of future casting. So as a futurist, I use future casting. And about 10 years ago, I developed this idea of threat casting, which is as it sounds, it looks at threats 10 years in the future. So we look at a mix of social science, of technology research, of cultural history and economics. We look at some trend data and we do global interviews, much like the subject matter expert interviews I've been doing here in Australia. And from that, we can start to identify both possible and potential threats. 10 years out in a specific area. And then what we do is we turn around and look backwards and say, okay, how do we disrupt, mitigate, and recover from those threats? And that's really the process of threat casting is to not only identify the threats that might be new or novel or something that people aren't thinking about, but ultimately it's our goal to empower organizations, to empower collaboration between different organizations to then really confront these threats today. And so there's been a couple of elements in terms of the work that you've been doing. You've run a series of different types of workshops. Can you explain a little bit about the role of those workshops, particularly, I think, this idea of the public engaging in the top in the subject matter? Yeah, that was one that I was really, really excited about. Typically, when I do threat casting, it is I we bring together a group of practitioners, whether they be security practitioners or law practitioners or people who are in high tech. And you really want to bring these folks together and get them thinking about the future, get them thinking about what these threats might be, and then think about what would they do to disrupt, mitigate, and recover. But what I got really excited about, Liz, when you and I were first talking about this, to say, well, we should also just talk to the average public. This is really part of our role, I believe, as we're looking out into the future, is not just to have a conversation with the corporations, with the academics, with uh, folks in foundations, we need to really talk to the general public and get their thoughts on it. What did they want to do? And so that's one of the things that we did is we, in the evening, got some just average folks together, talked to them a little bit about what I had been learning, talking to the subject matter experts in Australia and the greater region, and then just got their thoughts and walked them through the threat casting process so they could tell us what were they worried about? What did they see coming? And then what did they expect to be done? And who did they think would be the best to do it? Which provides a fascinating lens into that broader, you know, scope of what systems change might look like as we move into the future. I'm really interested to hear, you know, what have been the results of you doing this sort of work and some of the other sort of major global challenges that you've been working on recently? So a lot of my work over the past couple of years has been really looking at what is coming And what will the result be in the next 10 years as a constellation of technologies come online? And when I say that, 
it's not just one technology. It's all of these technologies combined. And and when I speak of that, it's things like artificial intelligence and machine learning. It is autonomy and land, sea, and air. It is distributed computing. Um, It is robotics. It is the, the Internet of Things, the ability to put computational power into any device. Or the flip side of that is also smart cities, so the ability to make whole cities or whole regions smart. And then you're going to certainly have the growth and continued growth of data over a 5G backbone pipeline. So when you put all of these things together from a threat landscape, what you start to see is you have a widening attack plane. So you have in a, a, a space where from a, from a cyber or digital attack that there are more and more places for threats. There are more and more weaknesses. And that's not just cyber or digital threats. These would be cyber social threats, which we're already starting to see, but also cyber physical threats. So what happens when you can begin to attack in a smart city, or you can take a complex digital supply chain and be able to go and attack that. You begin to see where the digital world and the physical world begin to come together. And that's where those threats begin to kind of jump, if you will, that barrier where up until today, until recently, you haven't had a lot of that. And we're going to see a lot more of that over the next 10 years. And then finally, one of the, I think one of the worst things is we're going to see more cyber of kinetic attacks. Um, That's one of the things that I do in my lab is um, come 2020 in the coming year, we're going to be looking at what is the future of digital weapons of mass destruction or how will cyber or digital help um, move along the success of a weapon of mass destruction. So we really are kind of digging into these areas and, and kind of trying to figure out, okay, what does it mean? Let's identify these threats and then let's get really specific. How do we empower different organizations? How do we identify different organizations who can do work in this area. So it's in that context that the Menzies Foundation has been really interested in exploring with you the implications of cybersecurity with this particularly in regard to the law. I mean, the law is subject to jurisdictions, to boundaries, to um, environments that pertain to geographic areas often, and the sorts of things that you're talking about are so far from that and require a whole new way of thinking about um, how the law copes with the challenges and the sorts of um, situations that you're describing. What's your insight around how the world is starting to think about how to apply things like the law into the context of the areas that you're working in? One of the things that got me really excited about this work is starting around 2016, I really started looking at the law and the future of the law. Um, and what I found very quickly, because I'm, I'm not an attorney, but I, I do speak legal. I speak law. <laughs> I can actually talk to legal professionals and have been doing a lot of work with legal scholars. And it's, it's really interesting being a futurist and talking to legal scholars and lawyers and attorneys. That's because so much in the legal profession and in creating the next generation of uh, lawyers is that the practice of law looks backwards. The practice of law is built upon precedent and sort of moving that forward. And that is the exact opposite of what I do. I don't do precedent. I do a decade out. And so I've been working over the last couple of years of saying, well, how could we take threat casting? How could we take my work to then think about these possible and potential threats, specifically when it comes to law and specifically when it comes to things like contracts, 
international law, regulation, to figure out, okay, how could we provide enough information to start informing legal professionals to get prepared? And it's been, a, it's been really interesting. It's been really difficult, to be quite honest. I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done. More specifically in the work that we've been doing together with, with Menzies and, and looking at what's happening, I think when you look at this widening attack plane and you specifically look at law and, and what can law do to prepare, the answer is not much. To be quite honest, I was really surprised um, in the beginning and, and sort of gave me pause to think, actually, in this threat landscape, in this widening attack plane, law has a very important part to play, a very necessary part to, a part to play, but it's not sufficient. And this, to me, sort of made me step back as we were looking at the results and saying, okay, so what does need to happen, right? I mean, I'm, certainly the law is incredibly important and the, it will continue to evolve, well, what else? What, what else needs to happen? And we've started to see, you can almost think about it as concentric circles of sort of laws at the, as at the center, as the bedrock. As it starts to move out, you can start to look at, well, what, what role does regulation play? You know, regulation is, you know, kind of a, a cousin of the law and has something to do with that, but regulation is a bit more gray and also allows us to move across borders sometimes in, in different ways than you could with law. And then as you move a little bit further out, we can look at norms. And I think norms are incredibly important, specifically for a Australia and specifically for this region, because you have so many different cultures, you have so many different economies, so many different approaches, that norms are a way that we and the way that countries and organizations and uh, militaries and corporations sort of self-govern themselves. This is where we all kind of agree, this is how we do business, or this is how we conduct ourselves. And, and norms, I think, are incredibly powerful. And you can go a little bit further out, and this is something I think that is inherent to the work that Menzies is doing, something that is incredibly important, especially when we were at the University of Melbourne doing the oration. It was a, a very key point was collaboration, that to really confront these threats in a meaningful way, to really get working today, there has to be a collaboration. There has to be a collaboration between the government and military and private industry and academia, trade associations and the average public. Because oftentimes when people think about these threats, these cyber threats, they think that they're too big and they basically just step back. They feel disempowered and they say, oh, well, the government or the military will take care of this. And the fact of the matter is they won't. And also because they can't. It's actually not within their jurisdiction, sort of ethically and fiduciarily. They're not allowed to. And there's a part to play for so many other people. And I think this is one of the key findings that came out is that we really need to start identifying who are these players and not only identifying them, but what I'm looking to do as we uh, release the report that coming out before the end of this year is to get very specific, to say, okay, who needs to start doing what? We need to start taking action today. What do we need to do? So it's really interesting, Brian. You know, the, the law in my conversations over the course of this week, which has been a fascinating week, I think, in different um, views and ways of thinking about how to approach this problem or this challenge, uh, the, the people have pointed out to me on a number of occasions that the law sort of follows. Society asks a question and the law follows. I think what we're really saying, though, is that's not going to be the way that technology is moving the um, eminent the imminence of the threat what we're what we're the uncertainty that we're looking into in some way requires us to think about possible scenarios and response that we're not going to have the lead time that perhaps we've had in the past when we find ourselves in a threat situation or a risk situation 
and it really does suggest that there's a real need for the law in conjunction with others, as you've described, coming together to consider what they might do in these sorts of circumstances and how might they respond. Are you seeing evidence of this in other instances around the globe? I am. And I think it's an important point. And I, and I want to really pause here and, and take a moment that the law following is a reality and oftentimes when you speak to legal professionals or um, legal scholars, it is a, a point of pride. It is a, is a point of that the, the law acts in a certain way. And what I would say and what I would put forward and what I have talked about this week is that is no longer sufficient. That now that we know that these threats are coming and we've identified them, we've talked about this widening attack plane, we know about these problems that are going to be coming, it's no longer um, sufficient to sit back and say the law follows. I actually think that's irresponsible. Um, and now I know it's a, it's a big shift, and I'm beginning to see this all over the, all over the globe. Back in 2016, I wrote a paper with a, a law scholar at Arizona State University, and the, the name of the paper was Dark Future Precedents, which for all the, all the legal geeks out there will know that that's a play on words, that future precedents isn't a thing. But what we were putting forward is it actually is a thing that now that you can envision these possible threats, that the law can begin to prepare. And I think it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be hard to make that change. But I think the first step is, number one, to look, to see those threats and then figure out, yes, the law needs to do what it does. But how can the law not only be informed by other organizations, but more importantly, how can the law inform how can the law consult with, inform, give guidance to private industry, give guidance to the government and the military? I think there needs to be this dialogue and this very open dialogue. We'll be right back after this short break. A key focus of the Menzies Foundation is to support Australia's response to global legal challenges. One of the key challenges is cybersecurity. How is the law best able to make a contribution to building cyber resilience in Australia our region and globally. In partnership with ANU, the inaugural Ninny and Stephen Menzies Law Program will be held in early 2020. Are you a lawyer keen to build your skill set to contribute to our response to cyber war incidents and make a contribution to building a more cyber secure world? Please visit menziesfoundation.org.au for more information. Welcome back. Uh, one of the key themes that's emerged during the week has been the implications of the rise of corporations as the power enablers of new technology. Can you just talk a little bit about the implications of that in the context of the challenges that we're talking about? Well, it has a, a bunch of different challenges. So if we, again, if we think of this, this widening attack plane, so this ability with all of these technologies running so that there's more instances for attacks, for crime, or even just disputes, sort of, you know, inter-border disputes, all of that today runs on the backbone of corporations. And it's only going to get worse or better, depending upon. It's only, you're only going to have more participation by corporations. Now, I think this provides both a positive and a negative for us. I think the negative is to say many of these corporations are largely unregulated or because they're multinational and they're all over the world, regulation and becomes very complex. And we were getting to see it over the last couple of years. We're beginning to see it happen. And, and quite honestly, we've been here before. We've seen this back at the beginning of the century. We've seen it back in the 90s. We've seen this idea of saying large multinational corporations and then being able through norms, through regulations, and sometimes through laws to be able to figure out, okay, how, how do we work together and how do we make sure we have security and healthy markets? 
But now as we move forward, we need to think about, okay, when you have increasingly more public services running on the backbone of private corporations, there's something there. There's something there that we really need to dig into, and especially with these smart cities, that it becomes really important for the citizens of those countries to really take a look at. But it's not all gloom and doom. I think the other side of it is corporations have a broader role to play. The majority of my career has been spent in private corporations, and a lot of my private practice is working with these corporations, and they have an increasing role to play. There's actually an opportunity for them to step up and be a part of global leadership to actually say, okay, how do we make sure that we're making people safer, more productive, better connected, making sure that they've got a better ecological footprint? There's a lot of things that corporations can also take a leadership role. And so I think it does come down to that collaboration. So it's very interesting because, you know, one of the um, key topics of discussion, I think, across the world now is, you know, what is the role of corporations as global citizen? What does leadership look? Is there a requirement around a sort of social man? mandate that looks at them as corporate citizen um, or corporate, you know, social player in the context of the work they're doing. And this implies an entirely different emphasis on and importance on that, I think, is what you're telling me. I think it does. And I think it puts the onus first on countries, on regions to say, what do you want? I mean, oftentimes, you know, it Ultimately, these corporations and these services and these businesses and these technologies, we can't forget that it's about people. Everything we do is about people. It begins with people and it ends with people. And there's a lot of corporations and a lot of laws and a lot of technology in between. But ultimately, it's about people and the power lies in those people. And so that's one of the things I think that we haven't seen. Um, over the last 10 years, and I've actually been doing quite a lot of talking about it to say it's really important for average people, for citizens, for governments, for organizations. And I think a lot of this can also happen in academia to say, what do we want? You know, culturally, ethically, you know, in our borders, what do we want? And to then go back to these corporations and start having that conversation. And that's a really strong place to start from because ultimately it's about not only the people who are a part of that, but also those people are customers as well. So I think we can't forget that there's an incredible power in saying, okay, this is what we want from you. I think one of the really interesting insights from the week has been, and part of the key agenda in preparing the law to think about how it might move into these spaces, is the sort of capability that lawyers are going to need to be able to understand the complexity of the cyber challenge or threat. So, and as to work out a solution from a legal perspective. You've spoken a little bit about that this week. Can you just reflect on some of that conversation that we've had this week about that and how law training, how lawyers build that muscle probably needs to change as we move into the future? Definitely. As a futurist and also as a professor, I spend a lot of time thinking about how do we prepare the next generation. Um, And that has been an an ongoing thread and an ongoing conversation that I've had with people um, over the last few months in my prep for the oration and then leading up to it. And then afterwards is saying, okay, how do we prepare the next generation of lawyers? Um, And I, to put it quite simply, they're not being prepared today. And in my subject matter expert interviews, um, to be, um, I'll still keep the anonymity, but one of the um, subject matter experts said to me just quite plainly, they said, BDJ, I need the next generation of lawyers to understand how the internet works. Something as fundamental as understanding, again, this widening attack plane and all of this running on corporations, you have to have a level of understandings. This person said, they really need to have an understanding of just code doesn't mean they need to become programmers, but much like understanding different 
languages and understanding different cultures, understanding how we talk to machines and machines talk to us, and that's code, is very, very important. And so having that sort of fundamental knowledge and just understanding how technology works, and more importantly, having those connections to those engineers or those to those academics to say, oh, I may not know how an app works or how Python programming language works or anything like that, but then they know who to call or they know who to email so that they can get informed very, very quickly. I think as we prepare that next generation, number one is to give them that baseline knowledge for sure. But probably more importantly, sitting on top of that is to give them the ability and the social network to reach out and be able to ask those questions, to feel comfortable asking those questions. But probably at the top of that is to know what questions to ask. And I think we're not preparing them to do that. They don't know what questions to ask. And it's very daunting. It's very hard because most lawyers, their job is to know and to be right. And if you've ever argued with a lawyer, that's what they do. That's their job. But we need to make sure that people are starting to feel okay with not knowing the answer, but knowing who to go to. One of the other interesting things that's come out of the week has been there's a lot of focus on uncertainty about the future, the complexity of the future, the magnitude of the problems. How do we position ourselves in that uncertainty and in that complexity as we move forward into bravely stepping into these questions? I have some bias here because I am a futurist and um, I do work in threat casting. So for me, as I look out to the future, there is uncertainty, but there's not more uncertainty. I do think people feel that there's an increasing uncertainty. And I think part of that is simply because there's a lot of information coming. But I think if you take a step back, like we've done on this project and look 10 years out, and do the hard yards, do the work, be able to look at the social science, talk to the subject matter experts, have an understanding of the technology, it starts to push away some of the noise. And you can go, oh, no, we actually know. That's one of the things that will come out in our report is we've got a very specific vision of the future based on fact to say, okay, here's where it is. And if you can start to define that problem and you don't see it as something scary or insurmountable or too large that it is unknowable, that's one of the things I think that that future casting and threat casting can do is actually define it. Because once you've defined it, then you can start to figure out what you need to do about it. And I think it's important to do that. And I think it's a it's not just a, like a project. It's not just maybe going to university and learning this. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of sitting and saying, okay, how do I not just think about the next big thing, think about all the noise and what everybody's talking about. How do I think about the thing after the thing? How do I think about the day after tomorrow? And then turn around and look backwards. Okay, all right, now let's see what we need to do about that. Oftentimes that really helps people. And ultimately it's my job as a futurist who threat casts. It's my job in my lab. And I think it's my job in our collaboration together is to say, how do we empower people? How do we empower people to take action? Because that's how we'll get things done. So one of the, um, I think, most defining things about you that I find the most encouraging is that you go to great lengths to explain that you're an optimist. Explain how you come to that and how that's so important in terms of informing the way that you work. What's well, a funny thing about being an optimist? Um, so I am a declared optimist. It's funny that sometimes it's almost the most radical thing I've ever done as a futurist to stand up on stage in front of people and say, I'm an optimist. Turns out people like their, their futurists to be pessimists. It's very funny. I was, um, I was in Germany once and I was standing on stage and I was standing there and you know, I'm, a, I'm a bald bearded futurist, certainly from the American West. And there I was and I was talking about the future and I was optimistic. And then standing next to me was this very dour, very European uh, futurist who was a pessimist, who basically said everything is going to end on Thursday. 
And when we were finished, everybody wanted to talk to the pessimist. But it turns out everything didn't end on Thursday, right? Because one of the things that I've learned as a futurist is that the future is built by people. Organizations build the future. Countries, regions, communities, everybody comes together and builds the future. That the future isn't fixed. It's not this thing that we're running towards, helpless to do anything about. That the future is built by people. And that's what makes me an optimist is that, well, if the future is built by people, let's get together and build a future that's better. Let's not sit back and be a passive participant in the future and let somebody else build our future for us because that never turns out well. Let's actually get together, start to collaborate, talk about the future we want, and then start to build it. So that gives me great hope. That gives me great optimism for what we can achieve. The other, I think, uh, not startling but interesting insight is your strong view that the future is local. So, so many of the threats that we've been talking about this week, this notion of cyber outside of borders, nefarious groups in hidden places in the world that we can't access suggests the opposite. And yet one of the great hopes for me is that the future is local. Could you just give us a few insights around why that is? Well, and I've learned that over the last 25 years, that the future is built by people, but it's also local. It's built when people get together in a room or people get together in a city or in a region and start working on the future together. I mean, really the funny thing is, is even if you broaden it out to the widest part as you can, that there aren't people hiding in dark spaces. They're all on earth. So it is defined at some point, right? At some point there is defined. Some people would talk about space stations, but that's a whole other thing, but it's defined. These, this is not unknowable. And as you begin to spec out the future, as you begin to say, okay, well, what are these possible threats? Who are these people? You know, what is going on? You can start to identify, again, everything's about people. So who are the people? What's going on? Where are they? But then you can wind it back to and take control back and say, okay, well, let's get together as a group and say, what is this future we want? What is the future we want to avoid? And then you can start building it. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen inside of corporations. I've seen it happen at universities and in governments and militaries that when people get together, there's power in that. And there's power in them getting together and say, okay, here's the future we're going to build towards. And that's actually how it's done. Like I said, I've done it for uh, over 20 years and that's how the future gets made. So, Brian, we're in the middle stage of a multi-step process. I'm really interested in um, you sharing what's next uh, and how this project continues to gain momentum and to build insight. I like to tell folks when we're working together, as you, as you say, in the, in the mix of this work with Menzies, we are just finishing up step two of five steps. So the first step was my research, talking to the subject matter experts, getting an understanding of the region. Again, I'm I'm not an expert in the law. Certainly I've been doing work in that area. I'm not an expert in Australia or the region, but certainly I've been working here for decades. But I just need to get smart on it. So we did that as step one. Step two was what we've been doing here. It's hosting the threat casting workshops with the public as well as with practitioners. The next step is I go home. I go back to America, I go back to the Pacific Northwest where I'm from, and I start doing an analysis. I start taking all of the work that we've done as raw material and start thinking about, okay, what are the threats? What could be done about them? How do we disrupt, mitigate, and recover from them? In step four, I then start to write that down. I start to say, here's what we talked about, here's what we said, and here's what I think we need to do about it. And then I go back to all of the participants. I go back to all the subject matter experts and put it in front of them and ask them what they think. 
part of that is to fact check it, but also part of it is to give them the permission and the platform to point out what we didn't talk about. This is something that's really important in threat casting because you can't do all the threats all the time. You can start to define some threats, but then take a step back and go to them and say, okay, well, what didn't we talk about? What are the areas that maybe we should get into, but we didn't get into? There's power in that because now you've identified what you can identify and now you've identified your next step. Okay, we should now go and look at these areas. Once we've done that, we'll release the report. That's really step four. And then step five is to start implementing it. And this is the one that I'm very excited about. So there's all the great partners that Menzies works with. There's all of the great schools and the great um, organizations to say, okay, here's what we think. Now, what do we do about it? How do we get started? From a academic standpoint, there's going to be an incredible amount of research that needs to be done. From a collaboration standpoint, there's going to be linkages that need to be made. I mean, it should be said that in Australia and in this region, that's already started. You actually have some people, especially in public and private partnerships and beginning the talking, but it's so at the beginning. There's so much more work needs to be done. Um, and so we, I think we need to create that sort of network of collaboration. Well, I'd just like to say the Menzies Foundation was delighted to partner with the University of Melbourne to encourage this really important conversation. And we're very grateful, Brian, that you've chosen to join us in this very challenging opportunity, but something that's so profoundly important for how we move into the future. So on behalf of the Menzies Foundation and the University of Melbourne, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It has been a, a pleasure collaborating. And it's I think it's it's really important. I think the work that has happened and what's going to come out of it is actually going to have real impact. And that makes me very excited.